Welcome everybody to the Scottsdale Saturday Big Book Study, where we will right. study the it big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Today is Saturday, the 31st of July, 2021. My name is Maria Efferson Frank, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I'm from County Dublin in Ireland. Please note that the speaker today, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of the study. However, the Q&A, which follows, will not be recorded. I will be hosting today's study and our co-hosts are Nancy J and Sue L. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, please contact either myself or you can contact any of the co-hosts directly by private message in the chat function. And please, can you all just make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's workshop. And in order that we can all be present with each other today, we ask that you refrain from using the chat function for the duration of the workshop. We will have additional time at the end of the meeting in order to exchange numbers for sponsorship, fellowship and outreach. So please do stay with us for that, but stay behind for about 15 minutes after the end of the workshop. And now we will pass over to Harlan G. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Maria. Thank you so much for your service. And I, I also want to thank every one of you who does tremendous service. I had an opportunity this week to check out the website, to check out the podcast. I don't normally go on there. And I had an opportunity to go on there and I did. And it's just beautiful the way it's laid out and everything. So I just wanted to, before I say anything about the chapter that we're in the family afterward, I just wanna say how proud and grateful that I am for all of you who make this possible. This is far beyond just me. This is a lot of other people who do the website, who post the recordings, who make it possible. So thank you so much. It is July the 31st, 2021. Can you believe that this year is going by so quickly? Oh my Lord, is it zooming by. And last week we didn't meet. We did the retreat for the Spanish speaking folks down in Mexico City, primarily in Mexico, and then South America, Central America, and North America. So we had quite a number of people. We had about, oh, 150 or so people at each of the four sessions, which was just magnificent. But I also want to throw out a thank you to all of the people who worked on that last week. I've never in my entire life seen translations that instantaneous. When I did the Italian retreat, uh, Barbara was translating. And when I did the Greek retreat, I forgot who was translating. We had a number of different people, but I had to keep stopping and so on. This was UN, United Nations type technology where the translation was just immediate. I mean, I've never seen anything like that in my entire life. How amazing is this world when such a thing is not only possible, but is practical because the cost was very minimal and the translators into Spanish were magnificent. What a wonderful, wonderful thing to be a part of. And I'm glad we're back together this week. I'm glad we're back together, but it was nice to be able to reach out to people who because of language barrier cannot be a part of this, cannot be a part of vision or cannot be a part of some of the things that I take so for granted. I'm so lucky that I speak in English, I, I understand English, excuse me, that I can be a part of the vision for you and that we can be together today. We're very, very lucky and very blessed. And sometimes I take that stuff for granted. So I wanted to throw that out there that um, I'm just so grateful for it. We have been in the chapter, the family afterward. And before we get started, and we're gonna get started on page 126 at the very bottom. I'm just gonna talk for a minute, but I'm just letting you know, we're, it says this sort of thing can be avoided. It's the very bottom paragraph on 126. And we have been talking in this chapter about the patience that we often need for the alcoholic. And what I wanna point out so much is 
that sometimes we are called upon to look at what's in this chapter and look at it from the standpoint of being loving and patient and tolerant of our own addiction and our own life. You know, we get such self-loathing at times because we put ourselves in positions through lying or through embarrassing behavior or because of the weight we've gained or because we got caught eating, whatever that may be for us, whatever that may be. And over time, if you're anything like me, you develop a tremendous self-loathing, a tremendous self-hatred. And I sometimes wanna scream at how much I disappointed myself. Yes, I'm embarrassed by how I disappointed others. Yes, I'm ashamed of the lying that I did and the things that I did or didn't do that hurt other people. Yes, that's true. But I lied to myself and I lied to myself knowing that I was lying to myself and yet I did it anyway. And I would stand there in front of the Doritos or stand there in front of the candy counter and I would swear up and down the day before or that morning or an hour before or a minute before that I was just gonna go into the store to get A, B and C and that I was not gonna get Doritos, that I was not gonna get ice cream or what have you, you know, fill in the blank, whatever it is that you can imagine that I was gonna get that was gonna kill me. And there I was eating it, there I was, doing the exact thing that I swore to God I was not going to do. And I often would embarrass myself through my lies, through my writing of bad checks, through all these various behaviors. It was embarrassing to me. And I came to a point of self-loathing at a very, very early age. I so wanted to be the little boy that they wanted me to be. You know, the doctors and, and the adults in my life all screamed and yelled at me about how fat I was getting and what I was doing to myself. I knew that I was killing myself, but I just couldn't help it. I didn't know how to stop. Because you see, amidst the sea of advice that I got, which was well-intentioned, but unusable by a little boy like me. This is what people told me. Don't eat so much, you'll lose weight. And if you lose weight, everything will be okay. I've lost a lot of weight and things were not always okay. They'd say things to me like, fat boys don't get girlfriends. I found that out. Fat boys don't get good jobs. I found that out. Fat boys can't run fast so they can't play on the team. I found that out. Fat boys don't look good. Fat boys don't do this and fat boys don't get to go to good universities or what, you can fill in the blank. And if you remember back when we studied Bill's story on page two of Bill's story, we looked at how he nearly failed his law course. He was too drunk to think or write. And I pointed out at that point, and, and you can go back into the podcast of Bill's story and check me out. I pointed out at that time that food, or not when I say food, I mean my eating disorder, my, my disease. Let's call it what it is, my disease. My disease was such so that it, rather than I, it, rather than anything else, was dictating where I could go, and where I could be, and who I could be, and what I dared to dream. And so at a very early age, I developed a very, very negative quitter attitude, a very negative quitter attitude. I would rather just quit than forge through the tough times. And since that time, since I was a kid, and since I've gotten into recovery, that has changed. I find myself many, many times forging through difficulties 
that I have to really say I could not have done years ago. And I certainly couldn't have done without God's hand to hold. And I so often needs God, need God's hand to hold. And I don't have any other way of explaining it to you. But if I have to ask the question, is it odd or is it God? I definitely know that it's God. But I started to despise myself and I started to live in a world of a defeatist attitude. And I started to live in the world of the quitter. And I started to pretend that I didn't care. And that was my defense mechanism. I don't care. I don't care. I just want to die. I don't care. I don't care. I just want to die. Well, the truth is, I want to live. I wanted to live then and I want to live now. I just didn't know how. I didn't know how. You see, I think that at some point in my life, I assumed that everybody just knows how to live their life, that everybody just knows how to do certain things. And it never occurred to me that if you didn't already know them, that you could learn them and that you could work through things. And there's a story in the big book where he talks about that. The author of the story says he assumed that either you knew how to do something or you didn't know how to do something, that you either were good at something or you were, either you learned, you knew how to play piano or you didn't, but you couldn't learn or you could. So that's basically how I grew up. And that's basically how I was. And there was really no one to show me, no one to teach me until I got into program. So we're going to pick up to the, uh, the family after. I keep wanting to call it this morning to the family afterward. That's not the title of the chapter. So I apologize. The title of the chapter is the family afterward, not to the family afterward. I know better than that. And I don't know what's going on with my brain. I think I, I think it's too, too hot or something. I don't know. My brain isn't working correctly this morning. So please, please excuse me for calling it the wrong thing. Let's go to the bottom of page 126. Let's go there and I'll give you a second to get there. And we're in the chapter, the family afterward. And what we're going to talk about today is the, 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 the dynamic, there you go, the dynamic of the addicted family. Some of you come from addiction and some of you don't, but whether you come from a family where there is addiction or you don't come a from a family where there's addiction, at least we know one thing, you who are listening to this and you who are on this Zoom call are most likely addicted <clears throat> to food. Either you come at it from my perspective, which is the obese side, the obese person, the obese, the one that's been overweight their entire life, or you come at it. I have a friend who lives in, uh, I, well, I have many friends, but this particular person that I'm thinking of lives in California. And if you looked at her, and if you come to either the next birthday or the next uh, Vision for You conference, the birthday is in January, but that's going to be on Zoom. But if we, we, when we're together, when we're together, hopefully it'll be at a, at a uh, Vision or birthday, I could introduce you to, to this particular person. And you would look at this person and you would say to yourself, good gosh, what is she doing here? Because that's the initial impression that you get from looking at this person, because they certainly don't appear as a person that is addicted to food. They run way more to the restricted anorexic side, but they also pendulum. And the reason I'm using this description is because I'm describing you. I'm describing either you are from my end of things, from my neighborhood of the obese, the overeater, or you're from this person's perspective where this person struggles with anorexia. They struggle with restricting. But I guarantee you, if you knew anything about this person's history, they are a back alley, garbage can, compulsive overeater, diving into the dumpster. All you'd see are feet and ankles flipping up and down in the dumpster. This person is a dumpster diving, compulsive overeater to the max. 
and they just pendulum where I never pendulumed, I never restricted. I remember one time, I'm just gonna tell this little story here and then we're gonna get started. I was at an OA birthday, no, I wasn't. I was at the Vision For You convention in Virginia Beach, Virginia, the first one that we ever had. And I was there and I was sitting there with a woman who is one of the frequent moderators of the morning meeting on a vision for you, which I recommend highly. And she said to me, did you used to get high from restricting? And I looked at her and she was shocked when I answered her. I said, I could never restrict for more than an hour or two or three. I said, I am not a restrictor by any stretch of the imagination. So whether you come at it from my perspective of the person that was always eating, the obese person, or the person who restricts an anorexia, bulimia, <clears throat> and then they, they'll pendulum into the compulsive overeating side of things, you are an addict. You are, you are in the right place by being here. So in your family, there was at least you. So let's continue 126 on the bottom, it says this sort of thing can be avoided. What sort of thing are they refer referring to? They are referring to the fuss that sometimes we expect people to make over us when we are in recovery. That's what they're referring to because it's been two weeks. Both father and the family are mistaken, though each side may have some justification. It is of little use to argue and only makes the impasse worse. The family must realize that dad, now dad in this scenario is the alcoholic. Doesn't necessarily mean that all alcoholics are male or all compulsive overeaters are female, because if there's one thing we know, that's certainly not true. These diseases do not run along gender, racial, religious, geographic lines. They don't run under any kind of line. If there's anything that the 113 of us know well, it's that this disease, this addiction does not care who it strikes and it will strike you unmercifully, whether you're male or female, gay or straight, Catholic, Jewish, Protestant, Buddhists, whatever, atheist, agnostic, white, black, green, yellow, pink, it doesn't matter. This disease will strike you in the heart. And it is an unmerciful, unmerciful disease. And it doesn't care what it takes away from you. This disease would love to see you dead, no question about it. It would love to see you dead, but if it can't see you dead, it at least wants to see you in a maximum amount of pain. And this disease is as vicious an addiction as there is in the entire world. And this disease is no way, no how in consideration of who you are and how many people love you and how many people count on you and how many people need you, and how wonderful you are. This disease does not care. Okay, top of 127. They should be thankful he is sober and able to be of this world once more. Let them praise his progress. Let them remember that his drinking wrought all kinds of danger that may take long to repair. If they sense these things, they will not take so seriously his periods of crankiness, depression, or apathy, which will disappear when there is tolerance, love, and spiritual understanding. Now, again, I want to emphasize something for you that I believe is very important for me, and maybe if it's important for me, that it's important for you. Look at this chapter, look at this paragraph, forget about the chapter right now, just let's look at this paragraph. And what is this paragraph urging me to do? The paragraph is urging me to be patient and understanding with the addict. And I get that. But when I dig a little deeper, when I just chip away a little bit of the surface, what the paragraph is asking me to do is magical and that it is urging me to be patient and loving and kind 
to myself. Now, I want to put a little asterisk at that point. You see, for a very long time, I believed that if you told me that I should be loving and kind toward myself, that means that I can eat ice cream and put chocolate turtles in, in the ice cream and break up Oreo cookies and put that in the ice cream too. That's not what that means. The way to love myself is not with ice cream and not with food. The way to love myself is to be kind and loving toward myself and doing service for others and treating myself in a way where I can gain credibility with myself and to do the things I say I'm going to do and to keep my word to myself. Oftentimes in life, I would lie to myself, but I would never lie to you. Oftentimes I would mistrust myself because I knew that I was a liar and a cheat and a manipulator. And I did things that I'm deeply ashamed of. I said things that I'm ashamed of. I did things that I wish I didn't do. Oh, how I wish I didn't do them. Oh, how I wish I didn't do them. I said things to my mother like F you. My mother was sick. My mother was mentally ill, but my mother loved me. My father was old and he was not American. I wanted Rob and Laura Petrie and I got something really, really different than Rob and Laura Petrie. I got two parents that were perfect for me and they loved me. And my father thought that one day maybe I'd be president of the United States. He thought that I was wonderful and so did my mother. Well, I never got to be president of the United States, but I am a person who can tell you that I am a member of Overeaters Anonymous. And so far today, it has not been, it has not been necessary for me to compulsively overeat and that I've done nothing, said nothing, went nowhere, did nothing that I am ashamed of today or yesterday or the day before or the day before that or the day, you get the idea. And so by doing that, I remember what I was taught when I first came in. A very wise man said to me on a freezing cold Saturday afternoon at a restaurant in Chicago called the Parthenon. It's on Lincoln Avenue. I don't think it's still there, but it was called the Parthenon and it was on Lincoln near Catalpa. And he would meet me there and he would poke his finger in my chest because I was 20 something years old. I was 30 years younger than anybody in those rooms at that time. There was one other lady, Kathy, that was my age and I haven't seen or heard about her in decades, but he would poke his finger in my face and uh, in my chest and he'd say, are you out of ideas yet, kid? Are you out of ideas yet, kid? Because I, as I say, I was younger than any of them. They could have been my parents for God's sakes. But anyway, what he taught me on those freezing cold Saturday afternoons is this. If you want to gauge your recovery, if you want to see if you're living a recovered life, this is his litmus, te lit litmus test. Sorry. And this is what he taught me. If everything you said today, everywhere you went, everything you did, and everything that came in and out of your mouth, not just food, but words, was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, are you okay with that? Because if you're not okay with that, he exclaimed, then you're probably wanting to keep certain behaviors secret to yourself. And he said to me, that is where the disease lives. The disease lives in the dark, secret places that I do not want exposed to sunlight. And he said to me that you are as sick as your secrets and that the disease will wither away in the light of day. 
and it will grow and prosper and propagate and become more lethal in darkness. Very important lesson that he taught me. And I hope I never forget it. That the disease thrives in the darkness and the disease doesn't do well in the light of day. Do you remember when you were a little kid, you probably saw a movie called The Time Machine and there was the Morlocks and they came out of their cave and the Morlocks, they couldn't stand sunlight. And when the sun was out, they would run away. And when they were out at night, they would eat people. And when the light of day, they'd have to go back into their hole. That's what this disease will do too. Open up the window on your disease. Tell the truth, be honest, be honest with your sponsor. And always remember the four impediments to God. What is an impediment? I'm getting way off track here. I'm not covering the ground I should. I don't know how I got to the four impediments, but let's continue the thought. Remember that there's four impediments to God. What is an impediment? It is a it is something which slows or stops progress. Some impediments are large speed bumps, some are walls. And what are the four impediments to God? A resentment that you will not let go of, step four. A secret that you will not tell. Does that sound familiar? It's what we're talking about. A secret that you will not tell. Now that doesn't mean that next week, be, um, instead of having Charlie Brown and the, and the gang, I'm going to have my bank account number, my PIN number, my social security number. That's not what that means. But what that means is I'm going to tell you things if you're my sponsor or you're a fellow. I'm going to tell you things that I need to get off my chest. I'm not going to keep things harbored as a secret because that's not good for me. The third impediment is a thrill, a dangerous thrill that you will not stop lying, cheating, deceiving, gossiping. Those are the, what we're talking about there. That's step six and seven. And then a restitution that you will not make steps eight and nine. See amends is AA language. Amends is not Oxford group language. And we come from the Oxford group. They didn't talk about amends. They didn't write about amends. They wrote about restitution. It's basically the same thing, same concept, but they just used a different word. So when I say this and I say a restitution, I'm talking about an amends. Okay. But Sam Shoemaker, who gave us those impediments, he was from the Oxford group, so he didn't use the word amends. He used the word restitution. Very same, very same kind of thing. I just need to explain. Okay, because I know that it will come up in the question and answer, what's a restitution? A restitution is an amends. To restitute means to restore. In other words, if I took your money, I pay you back. If I harmed you or insulted you, I apologize. But to restitute and to amend is, is parallel. It's very parallel. Okay, 127, let me, okay, page 127. The head of the house ought to remember that he is mainly to blame for what befell his home. But we cannot shoulder that blame ad infinitum. We have to at some point let it go or it'll kill us. He can scarcely square the account in his lifetime, but he must see the danger of overconcentration on financial success. Although financial recovery is on the way for many of us, we found we could not place money first. For us, material well-being always follows spiritual progress it never preceded. We're going to read that last sentence again, because some of us are in that position where it looks a lot better to work at the business than it does to work at my recovery. So I'm going to read that last sentence again. For us, material well-being always followed spiritual progress. It never preceded. I have a temptation all the time to concentrate on making money. And that's important, but I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility to God, to myself and others to put this sentence in the big book first. 
It's on page 77 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what does it say on page 77? It says, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. Let's go to page 45. You don't have to turn your book. I'm just going to quote. On page 45 is the thesis line of the book. And the thesis line of the book is our, the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Now, there's no line in the book that says, make a bunch of money or as much as you can, and then you'll worry about your program. Because here's what I know. If I'm in the food, and that's going to be a byproduct of me ignoring the steps and ignoring my service commitments. If I'm in the food and I can't fit in my clothes, if I can't get in and out of a car, if I can't go to a movie because I can't fit in a seat, if I can't fly on an airplane, if I can't function without eating all these crazy foods, then I am of no use to anybody or anyone. And I'm not going to make any kind of money because I sell on the phone. And when I'm that uncomfortable sitting here, I can't work for more than a few minutes at a time. And I'm worthless to myself and I'm worthless to my potential clients. I must remember that I have the third step promises in my life. So as long as we're talking about finances, I'm going to go back to page 63. You don't have to if you don't want to. I'm going to go back to page 63. And I want to remember what page 63 tells me. And I've never missed a meal. I've never missed a mortgage payment. I've never missed a, I don't pay, make a car payment. I paid cash for the car, but I never missed a bill. But let's see what it says on page 63, because we've just been looking at that we need to put God first rather than finances. Let's see what it says at the top of 63. When we sincerely took such a position, what position is that? The position that God is, is, is the director and we are not. All sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Notice that the word employer is capitalized. He's talking about God. Being all powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him. Him is capitalized. He's talking about God and performed his work well. Watch your capitals. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life as we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind. We discovered we could face life successfully as we became conscious of his presence. We began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We were reborn. Somehow, someway, my little microscopic business that I operate from home has sustained me. I've gone through a divorce. I've gone through a lot of financial setbacks in my business. A lot of financial setbacks in my business. But for today, my bills are paid. My credit is excellent. I don't owe anybody a nickel. I have no credit card debt. The only debt that I have is a mortgage. Other than a mortgage, I don't owe anybody a nickel and I pay out no interest. That's not me. That's God. I don't know how to do that. I don't have a clue. So let's continue and let's go to the page 127. Since the home, that's where we're at. Since the home has suffered more than anything else, it is well that a man exert himself there. In other words, the addict. He is not likely to get far in any direction if he fails to show unselfishness and love under his own roof. 
We know there are difficult wives and families, but the man who is getting over alcoholism must remember he did much to make them so. Keep putting my recovery first is the signal that I get from God every day. And every day I get questions about people. I'm going to a wedding. I'm going to this. I'm going to that. What am I going to do? How am I going to not eat cake at the wedding? How am I going to not have a drink? How am I going to? And you know what I tell those people? You need to do what you need to do for your program. And let everything else be damned. I am not gonna sit here and worry about what other people are thinking of me because I know the secret, they're not. They're not thinking of me. And anybody that gets that wound up over me not eating a piece of cake really doesn't care about me or know me because I found that the people who care about me don't worry about such crap. And the people who really don't care about me who have nothing else to talk about don't really matter. The people that matter don't care, and the people that care don't matter. I'm not saying that, that we should ignore them. I'm not saying we should be mean to them. I am, I'm coming home in November. I'm going to be in Chicago. I'm going to a wedding downtown. I am not planning on eating cake. I'm not planning on drinking alcohol. I'm not planning on eating anything that's off my food plan at this wedding. I'm not planning on that. I'm, I hope I don't. But I am not going to succumb to any pressure from anybody, and I won't get any. These are people that all know my history. They're not going to shove. But some of you have people that do that. I, my strong advice to you is ignore that. Ignore it. Because in the final analysis, when you go to sleep at night, it's about what you did rather than what they think. It's about what you did rather than what they think. Let's continue. Bottom of 127, as each member of a resentful family begins to see his shortcomings and admits them to the others, he lays a basis for helpful discussion. These family talks will be constructive if they can be carried on without heated arguments, self-pity, self-justification, or resentful criticism. Treat yourself just that way too. Treat yourself with the same respect, the same love tolerance that you would treat a sick friend. Remember that love and tolerance and an absence of anger is okay for you too. When I was a much younger man and I was still dating my soon to be wife, she heard how I would talk to myself and she put her hand on my arm and said, Harlan, if you talk to your friends the way you talk to yourself, would you have any? And the answer is no. Nobody would sit around and let me tongue lash them like that. But yet I did it to myself on a very regular everyday basis. Learn to treat yourself well. And the way you do that is to work the steps and to establish credibility with yourself. Do you want to know how to respect yourself, how to like yourself? Go help somebody else. And the only way I can be of somebody, help to somebody else is if I'm in recovery. It's just like a lifeguard at the beach. How do you, what's the first thing you need to do if you're going to be a lifeguard? You need yourself you need to learn yourself how to swim. Because if you don't know how to swim, you make a crappy lifeguard. You could watch movies all day long, how to save a life. But if you can't swim, you're of no use to anybody. And the first requirement of being helpful is to be in recovery. Very important. Little by little, mother and children, I'm at the bottom of 127. <clears throat> We'll see they ask too much. And Father will see he gives too little. Top of 128. Giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle. What is this book about from the beginning to the end? We give with no expectation of return. What is that called? Altruism. 
the Oxford group was an altruistic movement. What did Dr. Silkworth call us? An altruistic movement. What is altruism? Giving with no expectation of a return. Very important. We come from the Oxford group. Why do we study the Oxford group? Why do I talk to you incessantly about our history? Because we need to know where we come from. It's not a requirement of the program to learn about Sam Shoemaker and to learn about Ebby and Roland and all. It's not a requirement. You can work the steps. There's people that are in beautiful recovery that know nothing of those things. I think for me, it enhances my understanding and it enhances my understanding in a way that makes me more uh, likely to follow every precept of the program because everything we do was battle tested. Everything we do, every word was battle tested by people, some of whom choked to death on their vomit and died drunk so that they could teach us what not to do. Some of them were beautiful examples of recovery and some of them sadly were cautionary tales. And many of the authors of the big book of the first edition, the second edition, every edition, but many of the authors in the first edition big book died drunk and their stories didn't make it to the second edition because they were drunk or they were already dead. And they taught us what not to do. And what's the number one thing we don't stop doing? We don't stop working the steps. In 10, we continue. In 11, we improve. In 12, we practice. Very, very important. Let's go to the top of 128. It's not really 20, 18 minutes to the hour. It can't be. How does time go so fast, Mike? All right, anyway, sorry. Every time I look at my clock, I'm like in for a shock. Assume on the other hand, I'm at the top of 128. Assume on the other hand that father has at the outset a stirring spiritual experience. I never had a stirring spiritual experience. I had a spiritual awakening. I don't know if any of you, well, we can't, we're not, uh, maybe in the Q&A or maybe you'll contact me later privately. I don't know of anybody really that had this thunderbolt uh, spiritual experience like that. My spiritual awakening was very slow and it was of the educational variety as described in Appendix 2. Overnight, as it were, he is a different man, not my experience. He becomes a religious enthusiast, not my experience. He is unable to focus on anything else. As soon as his sobriety begins to be taken as a matter of course, the family may look at their strange new dad with apprehension, then with irritation. There is talk about spiritual matters morning, noon, and night. He may demand that the family find God in a hurry or exhibit amazing indifference to them and say he is above worldly considerations. He may tell mother who has been religious all her life that she doesn't know what it's all about and that she had better get his brand of spirituality while there is yet time. What is this paragraph pointing to? Do not go out to reform the world. I get this call every week of my life. I'm in recovery and I just did my fourth step and my nephew is overweight and my niece can't stop eating and I think she's purging and I... What do I do for them? What do I do for them? And they never like the answer. I'll tell you what my answer is. Recover, recover, and recover. Show them by example. Demonstrate. What does demonstrate mean? It means to teach through action. To teach through example. Recover, recover, and recover. Isn't that funny about our personalities that all of a sudden we get a taste of abstinence, we often get a taste of this program, and now all of a sudden we want to scream it from the rooftops. That wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, but it's very unlikely that anybody is going to respond to that. 
be the quiet example of what this program has done for you. Show me, show me what this program has done for you. Now you've got my attention. Now you've got my attention by showing me. Let's continue. We're on page 128. When father takes this tack, the family may react unfavorably. They may be jealous of a God who has stolen dad's affections while grateful that he drinks no more. They may not like the idea that God has accomplished the miracle where they failed. We're going to come back to that. They often forget father was beyond human aid. They may not see why their love and devotion did not straighten him out. Dad is not so spiritual after all, they say. If he means to right his past wrongs, why all this concern for everyone in the world but his family? What about his talk that God will take care of them? They suspect father is a bit balmy. I want to tell you a little story about a lady that I never met. Her name was Lois Burnham Wilson. You may know her or know of her. And her husband was a guy by the name of Bill Wilson. And Lois Wilson saw in 1917 that when her husband, who she married before he shipped out, when her husband <clears throat> shipped out for World War I and he went to Plattsburgh, New York, he started drinking. His father, Bill Wilson's father, was an alcoholic. Bill Wilson's grandfather was an alcoholic. And Bill Wilson's grandfather, being an alcoholic, was very difficult on the family. And Bill Wilson's father, being an alcoholic, forced his mother into a scenario where she divorced his father in 1906 when Bill was 10 years old. And that divorce fractured Bill forever. When Bill stopped drinking 17 years later in December of 1934, Lois was livid. Everything she'd ever wanted was right in front of her. He stopped drinking. But he stopped drinking because of Ebby Thatcher, who she remembers from being in the baby buggy, who was a drunk. And who the hell is this doctor in, this, in, the, in 1935? Who's this doctor in Akron? Who the heck is this guy? Bill Wilson left for Akron, Ohio, in April of 1935, he didn't return to New York until September of 1935. He, she was left completely alone, completely alone. And she had to take care of everything. She had to work. She had to take care of the house. She had to take care of everything. And he's in Akron, Ohio, at the home of some doctor who seems very nice on the phone, whose his wife seems very nice on the phone. But who the heck are these people? And why now is he sober when I tried to get him sober for 17 years? And that's why in 1950, along with Ann Bingham, a socialite whose husband was an alcoholic, they formed Al-Anon family groups. I'm not expressing an opinion about Al-Anon. It's an outside issue. I'm just telling you what happened. I didn't say Al-Anon was good. I didn't say Al-Anon was bad. I didn't <clears throat> say don't go to it or go to it. I didn't venture any opinion whatsoever. I'm just telling you facts. So Lois Wilson had a little bit of a problem with this. She's been loving him. She's been cleaning up after him. She's been putting up with his horse hockey for 17 years. And all of a sudden, in walks Ebby Thatcher, a known drunk. 
And then he goes out to Akron and he sees this doctor. And now all of a sudden he's, uh, his feet don't touch the ground. She couldn't figure it out. She couldn't figure it out. Let's continue. Bottom of 128. He is not so imbalanced as they may think. Many of us have experienced dad's elation. We have indulged in spiritual intoxication like a gaunt prospector belt drawn in over the last ounce of food. Our pick struck gold. Joy at our release from a lifetime of frustration knew no bounds. Father feels he has struck something better than gold. For a time he may try to hug the new treasure to himself. He may not see at once that he has barely scratched a limitless load, which will pay dividends only if he mines it for the rest of his life and insists on giving away the entire product. Twice this week, I've gotten calls from people who do not want to sponsor. And I always tell them the same thing, then you will not recover. This is a 12-step program. It is not an 11-step program. If you don't give it away, you can't keep it. That's, I didn't make the rules, boys and girls. I just play by them. I can't make the rules. All I can do is play by those rules. You're afraid to sponsor? As my friend Kim G in New Jersey says, you better be afraid not to sponsor. And if you're afraid to give away the load, if you're afraid of sponsoring because you're afraid that you won't be the perfect sponsor, you got to let that go. There's no such thing as a perfect sponsor. There's no such thing as the sponsor that knows everything. What you are is you are the lantern holder. This is my glass of water. Pretend it's a lantern. All you do when you sponsor is you hold the lantern up to the big book and you shine the light on it. And what the person does is up to them. You share with them your hope, your strength and your experience. And you have to be the adult in the room. You can't let them dictate to you what they're going to do and what they're not going to do and all this other stuff. You have to be the adult in the room. But while we're on the subject of sponsorship, what I want to do is I want to point you back to something. And I don't want to get that sidetracked because I'm not covering much ground here. But I want, I feel I would be irresponsible if we didn't go back to page 13 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, or 14, excuse me, of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And on page 14 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd like to read this paragraph because this is a textbook. And in Bill's story on the bottom of 14, well, I'm going to let him tell you. My friend, Ebby, had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs, step 12. Particularly was it imperative, imperative means important above all else, to work with others as he had worked with me. Notice it doesn't say that he felt that it was imperative that I make outreach calls or that I be the secretary of the meeting or that I handle the treasury of the meeting. Those are all good things. I'm not knocking those things. I, at the very beginning of this meeting, I said, I want to thank all the people responsible because I, I'm not equipped to do all that stuff. I don't do it. They do. But it's imperative to do what? To work with others as he had worked with me, sponsorship. Faith without works was dead, he said, and how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others, how do you work and self-sacrifice for others? You sponsor. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. That's a warning. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. Let's go back to page 129. And so at the risk of beating a dead horse, if you are in recovery, you must sponsor. 
If you're not sponsoring and you've had a spiritual awakening, but you're scared, work your step 10 and get to work sponsoring other people. Why is sponsorship so important? Let's answer that question at the risk of me completely going off the expressway here. Why is sponsorship so important? The reason that sponsorship is so vital to our survival is because one of the things that the disease does is it lies to us. It lies to us. And when we get lied to like that, sometimes we will believe the lie. What is the lie? That I don't need to help anybody, that I'm not good enough to help anybody, that I'm not perfect, I'm not gonna be the perfect sponsor. Who is? I don't know the perfect sponsor. I have never heard of a perfect sponsor. Clancy Immisland had Chuck C as his sponsor. And Clancy Immisland had a lot of sponsees in Los Angeles, California. Some of them are drunk and some of them are sober. There's no such thing as the perfect sponsor. Get out of the results business. But here's why we sponsor. Because the ego has three jobs. Make me right. Make me feel good right now. And make me different from everybody else. I know how to look up at you and I know how to look down at you. We were just talking about the fifth step on a vision for you this week. And this is exactly what we were talking about. But through sponsoring other people, what I start to learn is that these resentments, these fears, these sexual harms, these experiences of a life are not unique unto me. They are not unique unto me. And so I start to understand when I'm taking fifth steps, when I'm taking 10 steps, that there are two words that will unlock the cave of the addiction. And the two words are, yeah, me too. Me too. Those are the two words. And when I feel more a part of you, that less than I want to be apart from you, and I start to see that we're all human beings, now as a fellow human being, another bozo on the bus, now I can understand that God created us all so similarly. We may look different. We may be of different religions, different races. We may speak different languages. We may have completely different backgrounds. But if you cut us, we all bleed red. And if you listen to us, we all have hurt. And we all have things that we did that we wish we didn't do. And we all have things that we're proud of. And we all have difficulty in our daily life with the selfishness, dishonesty, fear, resentment that we all suffer from. That we are so all the same. That we are so human. And through sponsorship, and I don't know of any other way. Through sponsorship, I get a picture of how human you are. And in seeing the humanity in others, I can endear myself to my own humanity. That I'm not the only person of the 120 people here that had a mentally ill mother that I blame for everything. I'm not the only person here that had an immigrant dad. I'm not the only person here who had parents that died when he was very young. There's a woman on this line right now. Her mother died when she was nine years old. And here we are together. And some of you are in your 60s and your mother and father are still alive. Or one is alive and one is gone, whatever that may be. And so through sponsoring... I get in touch with this undeniable fact. I'm not really different from other people. 
I'm another bozo on the bus. Yes, there are situations that are unique. No question about it. No question about it. But if you take the gestalt, you take the big picture, you take the big picture, we are all the same. And that's why sponsorship is so vital. And there are three side results. What is the result of the steps? The result is a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. That's the result. That's what we want. What are the three side benefits of the steps? Number one, you get right with God. Number two, you get right with yourself. And number three, you get right with your fellow human being. Please, if you're not sponsoring, and don't start sponsoring the whole flipping world, you know, take it in moderation, you know, two, three, four people tops, tops. Don't start sponsoring half the country. It's, it's not good for you. It's not good for anybody. Sponsorship puts you in touch with your humanity and the humanity of the people around you. Vital information. I know I got a little sidetracked today. I'm sorry about that. I just felt like at each juncture that I couldn't just keep moving forward, that we had to dive a little deeper into it. And I hope as we move forward in this chapter, the family afterward, that we're looking at things a little different than we've looked at them before. And that some of this is starting to make more sense because your vantage point is a little different than it has been in the past. Okay, I'm gonna write down where we are and I'm gonna put down big book. But before I turn this over to, now I'm gonna turn it over to Maria because I have forgotten, I think it's Sue, but I, 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 I'm not sure. I'm gonna turn this back to Maria, but there's two things I want, three things I want you to guys to please adhere to. Number one, if you asked a question two weeks ago, please step back until all the questions of people that have not asked a question are done. Number two, no food questions. And for the love of God, no math questions, particularly no algebra questions. Forget algebra. We are not asking any algebra questions today. 